Good Wednesday morning, and in today's talk, John is speaking at Calvary Bible Church in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania. Last week, you heard him speak with the youth group, and today he is going to be talking with the CMDA group. CMDA is Christian Medical and Dental Association. Father, we know that only when your spirit works in our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, can anything of real significance happen. And so we ask that that spirit may be present with us, and we may be obedient for Christ's sake. Amen. Americans are amongst, well, they're probably top in the world in straightforward generosity. You get a very bad press. I should be in favor of your press. I should be representing America worldwide because the world thinks that Hollywood, Los Angeles, and New York are America, and in my view, they're not. Uh, The America I know is quite different, and it's incredibly generous and warm and somewhat undereducated, if you don't mind me saying so. Um... I was an invisible Christian for many years. I never did not believe the story. Uh, Even as a little boy, I was classifying things and doing things that little boys don't usually do, but I did. And I read quite a lot of history quite young and became very aware that it was a very bloody history at the start of the Christian era. And that made me perfectly certain as a little boy that they wouldn't have done that if they didn't know it was true. Uh, It's, I still think, one of the best arguments for the truth of Christianity. It's existentially inexplicable any other way. Uh, So I never ceased to believe. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but I went off to university and was turned into a reductionist within weeks without anybody ever using the word. And I was only fit to be a professor. So having dallied in half a dozen different spe- uh, specialties, I had got married and we got children. And my wife said, I need more help at home. Can't you do something else for a bit? So unusually, I did a PhD in order to see my children. <laughs> uh, and since it was my money, I'd have applied for it with a project and got it funded. Nobody could tell me what hours I was going to work. And I went home every night to have supper with my children and read stories and put them in the bath, etc., etc. And when that came to an end, uh, my wife said, I like this way of life. Uh, can't you do something useful with your PhD? Uh, she's always trying to make me useful. Um, but, and she said, you promised we'd travel, so do something useful in a nice place. And uh, like all of you doctors, uh, what I knew about nutrition could be written on a postcard and half of it was wrong. Uh, Churches should stop talking about nutrition. Christians should stop talking about nutrition. Talk about food. God knows what he's doing when he's making food. If you eat to appetite from a variety of sources, you will not have any nutritional problems. But... Uh, the, the, the topic that I got interested in, I was fortunate that my wild imagination actually hit a winner. So with my good friend Philip Hilton, we were the, the first people in the world to be able to study the behavior of the sodium pump from in leukocytes, which you can get out of people, even children. Um, and uh, uh, that particular protein kept me 
out of mischief and in employment for the rest of my academic life. But what I was not prepared for was what was going to happen en route. And I got into malnutrition because when I went through the world literature looking for children who must have a problem with sodium metabolism, gosh, your core, when you see an edematous patient, you don't know anything about the protein status. You may think you do because I'm not saying uh, the physiology is wrong, but there are children born with no albumin. They do not have edema. It's a very rare disease, but it's very important because it makes that point. Uh, so crush your core. The only thing you know is that, that child has got more salt in it than a marasmic. So there's got to be a problem somewhere. And I had a tool to look at it. In fact, to this day, the only biochemical me measurement that will distinguish uh, crush your core from Erasmus in the laboratory is the measurements I made. Albumin doesn't do it. So uh, it was a very satisfying experience. We went for two years and stayed for seven uh, because the Wellcome Trust, who was employing me, the world's greatest employer, so I tell students, if you, if you can think of a reason to get the Wellcome Trust to take you on, go for it. Um, because when they take you on, they pay every bill. They don't want you wasting time writing grant applications or anything like that. So I was so spoiled. Seven years, one letter a year, not more than two pages, saying what I'd done the previous year, what I was going to do the next, and how much it would cost, and that was it. And their evaluation, absolutely spectacular, if somewhat intimidating. But there were three of us in Jamaica uh, with these personal fellowships. And they sent three world-class scientists to Jamaica in January, first-class travel, nice hotel. And who wouldn't go for that? But the real reason was to look at what we were doing. Not to look at polished final papers in the literature, but to watch you doing your work in your laboratory and say, well, maybe you should do X or Y. That is an incredible uh, way to do evaluation. And I'd said I would do two years and... The, these guys went back to the trust and said, if you keep these guys together, yeah, they will finish the job, but it will take another five years at least. And it took, I left after seven years and to get into the unit for the malnourished children, hard for you ladies in particular, but fathers as well, to get into that unit, you had to be a 10 pound two-year-old or worse or be Demetrius. Otherwise, you went to ordinary pediatrics. Now, those children had well over a 50% mortality rate. Uh, and when American pediatricians arrive in a famine, the death rate doubles because the proper treatment of severe malnutrition is so counterintuitive, you can't bring yourself to do it. And a mom will simply shake her head and say, that can't be right. Uh, and I've yet to go to a mission hospital in Africa doing it right because Protein is poisonous at that point. I'll just leave that hanging there for you to think about. You can talk to me afterwards if you want. I wasn't going to start this way, and I've already broken your rules about talking about myself too much. But it's not really myself at one level. But I left Jamaica in 79 and had the privilege of putting the last piece in the puzzle. Um, and we went through 100 such babies and saved every single one. So we had done the science. But what I had to learn was that science isn't enough. And being at a mission conference, science is not enough. Especially Americans, you 
are very generous. And you go, say, somewhere like America, uh, like Central Africa, where I've spent a lot of time, and you see these women pounding corn for eight hours a day. So next time you come, if you're a naive American, you bring a, an American piece of equipment that doesn't work there. Uh, if you're smarter, you buy it in Bujumbura and you bring a mill to the village. Well, within a year or two, it won't work. Because the, the mindset that we have, which is a gift from thousands of years of Judeo-Christian uh, thought, is not present. If you live in an environment where half your children die before maturity, your crops fail at random, and you have the worst governments in the world, how could you believe in a God of love? And yet they do. And the church is growing, whereas here it's not. But they are new Christians in a fading pagan story of meaning. And you are new, soft, soon-to-be-hard nihilists living in a fading Christian story of meaning. We're like ships passing in the night, and Africa is going in the right direction, and we're going in the wrong direction. That's what I had to learn. Uh, but that's not what tonight's lecture is about, so I don't know why I said that, but there, there, there we go. But I have learned over the years that if that sort of thing happens, there's a reason. Uh, my wife, who's very organized, gets so cross, but does admit that I'm right on this one, that, that I have a lot of rabbit trails in talks I give, but I come back to the main theme. But if a rabbit trail pops up in my head, I let it, I let it run because time and time again, somebody comes up afterwards and says, when you said X and it was the rabbit trail, I thought you were talking to me. That's the way God works. And it also gives you a sense that you are a servant in the service of a Lord who, who's not millions of miles away. He's right next to you. And you become most aware of that when you are in need of it. Uh, and he does amazing things. Uh, a few years ago, I've been to Cuba many times to lecture, uh, mainly on medicine, uh, but it was set up by Canadian Christian Medical Dental Society, the program, and Christian physicians in Cuba. And Castro said, we need you, uh, because they were getting... They needed some outside stimulus, so he allowed us to, to, to do that. And I was allowed pretty free reign to... I had to do some technical medicine, but he didn't, they didn't interfere with me when I did other things unless I pushed the envelope too far, which I did on one occasion when I was still speaking to uh, Cuban students at midnight on Sunday in a packed church, and they can't get 10 people out to the Communist Party meeting. So uh, I didn't get the visa for the next time, but when I came back after that, they took more careful care of me to see I didn't get out of control. But on one of those trips... Um, I had an incredible opportunity. Um, I'd given a lecture and a man comes up to me and he turned out to be the head of the Department of Marxism and Leninism in the local university. And I said, what on earth are you doing here? And he said, I've come to see you. And I said, why? And he said, well, the students tell me that you say Russia did not collapse because of Reagan's power or politics. Russia collapsed because it rotted from the inside. It was a moral failure. It wasn't politics at all. Uh, and I agreed with him. And he said, when I heard you said that, uh, I'd got to that conclusion too. 
He said, when I saw that Russia was going to collapse, I knew why it was collapsing and I didn't want the mafia to come back to Cuba. But we were going to be in trouble because we sold all our sugar to Russia. And they were in trouble. So he started trying to, to teach multicultural ethics. But by definition, there is no such thing. It's a nostrum of the liberal elite who don't live anywhere where you actually have to see what works. Um, and so he said, but the trouble is the students go to sleep. But they tell me they don't go to sleep when you teach ethics. And I know that you say there are no rational ethics if there is no transcendence. You're living in a house with no foundations. You're doing what, what Jonathan Swift predicted way back in Gulliver's Travels when in Brobdingnag, he said that eventually they'll try to build a house from the top downwards. That's what we're doing today. He was right. So uh, he said, I want you to debate me tomorrow morning because I, I know you, you're going away tomorrow afternoon to another city. But will you debate me, please, in front of the faculty on the proposition that without transcendence, there is no possibility of ethics. Uh, I don't mind losing. I want to learn the arguments. What an amazing man. And uh, I wouldn't say no to that anyway. Uh, I had one evening to prepare and I, like chess, you have openings to choose from. And I thought I got it all nicely organized. And then when I got up, got there and got up, God wiped the slate clean. My mind went blank. And then a whole new approach was put in. Uh, fortunately, I had a Canadian-Colombian translator. I said, Hugo, you better hold on to your, your chair because what I told you is not going to happen. I said, right on the blackboard behind me, this message assembled itself in Spanish. And uh, he did. And then I asked the profs and graduate students, if you come into the lecture room and found this sentence on the board, what would you make of it? And of course, they're smart. They said, well, it's a sentence, but it's meaningless because the whole point about message is taken away. If that's true, you can't have both. There's got to be a message writer. I said, quite right. And then I turned around and I crossed out the word message and put DNA in its place. I said, but you do believe this sentence. Because Darwin told you that it happened by chance, so this happened by chance. But don't you see, DNA is merely the word message translated into biochemical. That's what it is. It's not even a protein. It's a coded message. It doesn't do the whole thing we now know, but it does a good chunk of who you are. Uh, and it is the most incredible code. Speaking from my own perspective, I simply say God only needs four letters in his alphabet and he can do with three-letter words. Uh, and that's what he does. But to get a single protein, you've got to get about at least uh, 300, pro 300 amino acids. That's approaching a th that's 900 bases in the right order. And it's got much worse than that in the last little, well, quite a long while. And God doesn't waste space, so to speak. He can write two messages in the same sequence of letters, overlapping by one. So... How could you do that? We can't even begin. When Bill Gates was shown that, he just said, we wouldn't know where to start. We have no idea how to do something like that. But it's there. Some chunks of DNA have got two messages in the same sequence, and they both work. They're not dysfunctional. When we first got going years ago, uh, um, 
the vast amount of DNA was called by my more cynical or reductionist colleagues junk DNA. There's virtually no junk DNA left now. Uh, and some bits may only be packaging, but think how good God is at, uh, at uh, what's that Jamaican paper folding thing? The word's gone from me. What do you call it? Origami. Origami, yes, sorry. The word had just gone. I'm that age. God is the best there is at origami because you have two meters of DNA in every cell. And he can fold it up in such a way you can't see it with any detail. Uh, we can only see it through biochemical means in terms of how it works. But that's, that's, that's enough on its own, really. Uh, John Lennox, the mathematician from Oxford, said he didn't know about double reading frames either when he said this, but he said the probability of what we now know about DNA happening by chance is roughly one for all the molecules in the universe. And the great uh, quantum physicist at Cambridge, whose name I've now forgotten as well, the head of the British Humanist Society, says something like this. He says, the maker's aim looks to me to have to be accurate to one part, raised to the power 10, raised to the power, I think it's 127. That's 127 zeros before you get to the number. Out by one, we wouldn't be here. Talk about a fine-tuned universe. We don't come anywhere close to that in our engineering. We might get to nanometers, but what's nanometers to God? Femto is a big number still for him. So, you know, it, it's stunning. And that block is enough to end. And now James Tour has come along uh, and does it. How many of you have heard of James Tour? Oh, my goodness, none of you. What a pleasure you have in, in store. Um, you put James Tour and uh, the head of the Discovery Institute, uh, Steve Meyer, and Dallas into Google, and it will take you to a, a apologetics conference in Dallas a little while back. Now, Steve Meyer has written the most challenging book for the neo-Darwinians. After it, they've had three conferences to come up with neo-neo and then made it. And they're honest enough to say so, which is some of them, which is remarkable. Uh, but James Tour is a chemist, a brilliant chemist of the first order at Rice. And he, uh, he's got about 800 patents, uh, and he's so enthusiastic. He was a Jewish kid getting out of control, and then he got converted uh, way back. And so he, he does his bit in that apologetics conference by saying, this is an apologetics conference, but I will not mention God in the next hour. I will simply show what God does in going from inorganic to organic and how difficult it is to do even one little bit of it as the best chemist, with the best chemistry in the world. Uh, you won't understand the chemistry, but he will give you a, a deep sense of how precise it has to be. Uh, sometimes when we're pushing the limits, they really are the limits. And I'm glad I was a little bit naive because I pushed a system. I wouldn't have had the courage to start if I'd realized what I was trying to do. And I did it before I realized what I'd done, if you see what I mean. But it worked. But that's the world that God has made. So because of the fine tuning, not only of the cosmos, but of living creatures, because of the incredible barrier between the inorganic and the organic world, and the fact that we're written in code, 
if that doesn't convince you you're blind or, or stubborn or something, it's mainly stubborn, I think, now. So medicine is not part of the scientific world in many ways. I don't know if you know this, but until the 1860s, going to the doctor didn't mean you would live longer. The people who didn't go to the doctor lived longer than the ones who did. Uh, until 1860, when uh, antiseptic surgery came in and also Pasteur at roughly the same time. People went to the doctor, and they still do, and increasingly in the next little while they're going to do it again. Why did they go to the doctor? Well, you see it more clearly in the developing world than anywhere else. I particularly saw it in quite moving ways in Jamaica. Uh, I was there to do research, but to, as a contribution to the health system, I did one clinic a week of internal medicine. Uh, uh, no, what I would call in my past life, rubbish, all real disease. Uh, I tripled my experience of DLE of the kidney in the first clinic. It's, it's almost endemic in Jamaica, and I think I know why, but that's a whole other story. But people would come from the rural areas to the university hospital, and they were almost subsistence peasants, so it was a big cost to get there, and they'd get their tickets and uh, get 15 minutes with the doctor, if, unless they came to me, and since I wasn't being paid, I spent as long as I wanted with any given patient. But one common uh, disease that I could diagnose and sort out clinically uh, without having to do any great tests is that a lot of cancer of the liver there, uh, because of peanuts, never buy peanuts from a health food store, Kraft and the other are better because peanuts, if they grow the mold on, have one of the world's most potent uh, um, carcinogens, aflatoxin, on them. And only big companies can afford to do the test to make sure the batches don't have it. So it's a good example of where the health food store is orders of magnitude more risky than Kraft. I don't like saying that, but it's the truth. Um, and you combine that with lots of raw alcohol and cancer of the liver is uh, uh, going to be a common cause of death. So the patient knows there's something wrong with them. And that's why people go to the doctor. They know that something wrong with them. And that, we can't live with that very easily. So I would examine, take the history. And when there are cancers, cancers reach the liver, you can feel it's hard, but they don't you don't use stethoscopes properly anymore in the modern world. But if you listen over secondary cancer in the liver, most times you can hear a rub. And the only thing I know that does that is cancer of the liver. So you can actually say, I know what's wrong with you, and I know where it is, and I know the prognosis. But I don't put it that way. I, I say, well, there is some good news, uh, but there's some bad news too. Which you want first? And they want the good news first. I say, well... I can put your anxieties to rest in the sense I can tell you what's going to happen. But then the next bit is hard to do and you take a little while. But almost invariably they said thank you. Because now they knew what they had to do. They had to come to terms with the fact that their life was near the end. They had to, to if they're sensible, deal with all the problems that were around them. And they said thank you. And that's increasingly going to be the case. 
And as people practice euthanasia more and more, that's going to become more and more apparent because it's an act of selfishness in a way uh, to practice euthanasia because you force them to agree to something which afterwards they're going to regret. The, the t total mismanagement of the actual dying process in COVID was due to the fact that there was no, there was no soul operating within the people who had the power and they were enjoying using it as the emails are more and more showing. Even Francis Collins, which really upset me because he's an evangelical Christian. And I thought he was a very good man. I corresponded with him on occasions. Uh, I hope there's some explanation that he was being misled, but at least one of those emails is really rather horrible. There was a moral failure in the manage management of COVID, or more precisely, a cultural failure, a failure to relate to the culture that we live in. Uh, medicine needs to think about that. Years ago, I... I got very angry about a, uh, an article in the Canadian Medical Association Journal by two feminists, which was really an attack on men and saying that medicine should be run the way they wanted to do it. And as, I, as a few times in my life, I wrote an article in anger and sent it where it, perhaps it shouldn't have gone quicker than uh, I should have done, but in both cases, good came out of it. Uh, it's the only time I've had a paper published uh, within a week or two uh, that began with poetry. Uh, because my favorite description of what it means to be a doctor is from W.H. Auden, who was a Christian at the end of his life, uh, a radical homosexual earlier on, and never managed, as he said, I can control everything except my male organs. Uh, but he wrote this. He said, give me a Dr. Partridge Plump short in the leg and broad in the rump, an endomorph with gentle hands who will not make absurd demands that I abandon all my vices, nor pull long faces in a crisis, but with a twinkle in his eye will tell me that I have to die. Now that's as far as you can get from teaching moments and all the modern so-called educational stuff that's being foisted upon us from my most hated faculty, the Faculty of Education. I think they have destroyed education. Uh, I hope we're going to recover, but it's not going to be easy. And the church needs to start thinking about education too, beyond merely going to church to feel a little better once a week. And that's part of what tonight will be about. So uh, I wrote that in a, two, three hours, and I walked home, and I passed the office of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, so I put the envelope through. And the next morning, the editor called me and said, uh, it's a nice essay. I will publish it as long as you don't object to me having two people to rebut it. So I had to have two to one, uh, two feminists to take me apart and call me a dead white male, which was predictable. Uh, but it did get published. And I had more telephone calls about that paper than any other paper I've ever written. Mainly by physicians said, thank you, I wish I knew how to say that. I'm not bothering writing to the journal, they won't publish it. Well done. And that went literally from Prince Edward Island uh, to Vancouver Island. We've got to get back to that. We have a long history. Um, so one of the more important bits, and then that will lead us back to modern healthcare. The next link in this chain occurred by students, as many things in my life have. Um, 
once my face uh, began to be brought to the surface, the first thing that happened was that I went to a cocktail party and there was an IBCF guy, the organizer for Eastern Ontario there, another Brit, um, who had gone to Oxford and got his degree and immediately started working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and had done so for the next 30 years and was the regional organizer for Eastern Ontario. And we talked and I said, oh, you work for them. Hmm. I went to IV for about six weeks as a student, uh, but I'm allergic to evangelical smiles because I think they're largely hypocritical um, and not true. Uh, so I stopped going unless Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Stott were speaking or someone of that caliber, then I'd go. As a student, one of the gifts, as I now realize, on Sunday I had the choice of going to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Stott, Dick Lucas, Ken Pryor, unbelievable. Uh, Lloyd-Jones preached three sermons a week of 50 to 60 minutes. Uh, there were a thousand students in the audience and you could hear a pin drop. Uh, people who were in the chapel recognize his influence on me when I'm speaking around the US. Him and C.S. Lewis probably were the most important influences. Sadly, I'm, I missed out on meeting Lewis. A friend of mine actually looked after him in his final in illness. He died because he was a stoic. He, didn't, he thought you shouldn't complain about what your lot in life is, and so he didn't complain about benign prostatic enlargement. And by the time he was forced to complain, he destroyed his kidneys. Uh, so sad, we lost him early, but God knows what he's doing. So uh, John, the guy who became a friend, didn't get mad with me. Uh, he asked me to explain what I thought was the problem. Um, and then we went our separate ways. Uh, but then he called me a few months later and said, I need a speaker for my annual fundraising banquet. Will you do it? I said, you can't be serious. If I say to them what I said to you, that's not going to bring you any money. And he said, uh, they need to hear what you've got to say, but try and be a little less cynical if you can. Uh, I doubt that I was, but in the audience was a young man who just got into our medical school. And come September, after having listened to me for a little bit, he rather timorously came to see me. I was not known as a student-friendly professor. Uh, and he knocked on the door, and I said, come in, and he said, are you really a Christian? And I said, it's a fair question. Okay. Uh, I admit there's not too much evidence in the university. I just keep my head down because I'm happy in the laboratory. Uh, but I believe the story's true, but you'd have to come to my home. That's where it's operative. And he said, well, I, I heard that talk, and there are four of us in first year who don't want to lose our faith. Will you help us? And I said, what would you want me to do? And he said, could you do some Bible studies to help us integrate faith and practice? I knew I could, but I wasn't about to say yes, but then my mother turned up at the back of my head and said, you could, you ought, do it. So... Uh, I said, you better come to my house at eight o'clock on a Thursday evening so that you've studied beforehand and you're not neurotic and I'll do four weeks. And I ended up doing 10 years. Because once you allow these kids into your house, you start to love them and they wreck your life, basically. <laughs> Although in this case, they, did, they changed the direction of my life over the next few years. 
totally, along with David Stevens, who somehow tracked me down. And uh, I, I did something that very few people will ever do. I sent grants back to the grant giver. The dean was furious. But I realized that my wife spent two years running refugee camps uh, after the Rwanda war. And when she came back, I'd been home at, you know, for, five, for six o'clock supper every night, uh, gave about six talks plus the Bible study. When she got back, I was doing 100 and going all over the continent. I'd changed churches. And she said, you cannot see patients, run a laboratory, uh, do 100 talks a year, something will go pop. You've got to decide what you're going to do. And Augustine College was on the way by then, and my colleagues there said, it's a no-brainer. There are plenty of biochemists and pediatricians, but very few people who do what you do. And my new career begun. It's why I'm here tonight. Uh, and it's been a wonderful journey. I mean, I'm, I had my 83rd birthday uh, a few days ago. Uh, I have no serious disease. I take no meds. I've never taken a supplement, so I haven't been poisoned by them. Uh, and here I am. So the next thing they did, I never went to graduation. I thought, that's a good way to waste three hours. I prefer to spend it in the laboratory. But the students had come to the Bible study, said, our parents want to meet you. Uh, and you can't say no to that. I, I could arrive late, which I did. Uh, and the first time I was sitting in the back row of the profs, and they had the Hippocratic Oath on the agenda. And I had to listen to it. And I said, there is no way Hippocrates wrote that. They, they are perjuring his name. Uh, I got a copy and yes, it was modified with all the usual modern rubbish like the bend of the knee to homosexuality and that kind of rubbish. Uh, that's intellectually indefensible. If you're going to use a man's name, you have to use his words. You can't use your words under his name. And so I wrote another of these rather uh, angry things, but this time uh, a little more controlled. Um, but it was called What Hippocrates Knew and We've Forgotten. And if we're going to talk about healthcare, we need these principles in place first. And isn't it amazing that God gave these, you can be thinking about this, God gave these incredible insights to a set of polytheistic pagans. They got it right, and the people who rule medicine today don't even ask the questions. Because the ancient world, at least, was not in a hurry. Uh, and so they knew what the real questions were. I thought everybody was taught them at school. I went to an incredible school, but that's a whole other story. Uh, same school that Tolkien went to, actually. He was a generation before me, one of the six best in England. Um, so I got a good education. In fact, high school education was better than university. I was bored in university. But uh, so my teacher, my homeroom teacher, uh, when I got to high school, spoke five languages, including Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, this, and I said, so this is high school, and in that one it, it was. Uh, so polytheistic Greeks was something I knew about. And after all, the Greeks set a lot of things up for us. They didn't get it all right, but they got a lot right, and they asked the, the right questions. The first time I mentioned those questions in a lecture to students in Canada was McGill. And when I got back to my office, there were emails saying, where did they come from? The answer is we don't know. They're so old that we can't say for certain who wrote them, but they are these. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? The, the three triplets, they overlap. Uh, 
Then the more practical ones, how do I make sense of death, suffering and injustice? Three more. Then what can I know so that I know what I ought to believe and can therefore say what I ought to do? They got it worked out at that level before we could attribute it. It's written on the soul at one level, but our souls have been so damaged. Most people have never ever asked themselves those three questions and said, that is the agenda for life. You can teach those to your children and have them say, this is, this is the framework that you're supposed to be attacking and understanding and building on. And they did. Now, in Africa, in the ancient world, and now in, we're returning to the same sequence, what did doctors do then and are now beginning to do again? They killed patients for profit. When patients die, money changes hands. Some people can't wait for the money to change hands. Trust in, the, in school is dropping dramatically. When you went, judging by the grey hair and no hair index, many of you went to school when you trusted most of the, your colleagues in your class, but you now know that they, they weren't all trustworthy because they've lost their licences and the like. It's got now to the point where I spoke to, not so long ago, a medical student in first year at one of your more prestigious medical schools that I won't name, and I asked her, what proportion of your class do you uh, trust after a few months in medical school. She says, I haven't met anyone yet. And I've certainly had, from later students in other parts of the world, I don't trust anyone in this medical school. And Robert Fogel, uh, Department of Economics, Chicago, Nobel Prize winner. I had a long conversation with him around 2000 because he wrote a book about the Fourth Great Awakening, which he thinks is underway. He's dead now. But here's a secular Jew, a Nobel Prize winner, and he wrote a book because by 2000, he did not trust the graduates in his class in the way that he used to. He predicted the 2008 meltdown, which was an ethical failure, because those graduates knew one another, half were in the banks, the other half were in the governments. It was loyalty over truth. You can divide the world up with that single question. Is this culture dominated by truth or loyalty? Now, many of you are already on the loyalty side of the equation when you think about what you actually do. But that's not the Christian position. We should be on the truth side of the equation. And when we are, that has huge implications. You don't have to stop and think for wrong for long. If truth dominates the culture, how do you get your job? competence. If loyalty trumps the equation, how do you get your job, who you know, or who you put in power? I mean, as Jordan Peterson beautifully points out, if you insist that must be as many female uh, entrants into engineering as male, by definition, you are increasing defective engineers for no other reasons than statistics, because almost all men have to be taught some degree of civility towards other people by a good wife. They like things. I've never met a girl yet, I'm sure that they exist, who did what 
certainly working class boys did when I was growing up, one of the joys of it was taking an internal combustion engine to pieces and putting it together again. I've never met a girl who's done that. I mean, she must exist somewhere. But even my daughter, who's got a degree in engineering, which she got to prove me wrong, uh, and then, ad then admitted afterwards that I was right. Uh, it's not me. I said, it's God. Just look around. Uh, we're different, even in the way our brains work. The, the one you all know, but you've probably never thought about it this way, you hear in a car regularly. Now, men, you should listen to your wife when she has information about what's on the left, the right, or ahead. She will be a millisecond in, ahead of you. But when you're driving towards the gap and she says, slow down, you can hit the accelerator. Because our spatial geometry and our spatial uh, understanding of where we are is to millimeters at the best end, and they're lucky to do to six inches in many cases. Uh, that's why there will never be a Formula One female racing driver. Uh, I had a wonderful experience as a medical student. I was doing my neurosurgery rotation, and we were not far from Silverstone, the F1 track in uh, England, and Sterling Moss was brought in, unconscious. Sterling Moss was the Formula One champion of the world at that point the best racing driver in the world at that point. But he'd had a crash and he was unconscious. The next morning he woke up. But then the question was, how do we decide on the damage? Obviously, normal standards don't apply to Formula One racing drivers. And then we had a very good woman psychologist. She said, well, all the other racing drivers are coming. They'll let me test them too. And the first amazing number that came out what do you think the average IQ of a Formula One racing driver is? Have a guess, it's fun that way. The women, 100? It was 160. They're off the charts. Several of the British ones uh, ended up running television chat shows, you know, where the host has to be very quick on the ball. They were wonderful. Uh, and then talking to them, when a new boy comes on the patch in Formula One racing, they have to know how cool he is. I don't know if you've ever seen the start of a Formula One race. They all line up. They all start together. If there's a crash before the first corner, somebody will be fined. We wouldn't, uh, we'd be in a crash in immediately. But they have to know how cool this, this guy is. So they'll come up behind him on the back straight at 200 clicks or whatever, and they can put their front tyre on his back tyre enough to get a puff of smoke in the mirror, but not to take him off the road. They know where their tire is to yes. less than a millimeter. That's incredible coordination. Don't try Formula One unless that's your level of coordination. For a woman, if you can't reverse in with two inches on either side in the gap, don't even think about it. But we're different, we're made differently. Fortunately, it was a woman who found that out. <laughs> and she was booed when she said that men are different. And you can say women are better at languages and nobody bats an eyelid. That's perfectly all right. So I always say that first so that even the dumbest person can see there's a bit of a contradiction if you refuse to take a similar statement about men as it happens to be this one. And so she reprimanded the audience, see that kind of woman, and she started the Society for the Defense of Academic Freedom which hasn't succeeded yet. So back to the Greeks. Uh, they knew what the questions were. 
And you should start asking your children and your grandchildren whether they know what the big questions are, uh, making them think about them. And each cultural group of any significance has a set of answers to that. But those answers are consequential. Cult it's not about race. When anybody talks about race, they say, can't we talk about culture? Nigerians are as black as anyone else in America, but they're doing pretty well. And there's a, the, a lot of black people are too. Listen to Tom Sowell, the best black intellectual in North America. I think mean, I love listening to Tom Sowell. Uh, and in fact, if you took the black community in America and turned it into a country, it would be the richest black country in the world. We're making identity politics is not the way to go. And of course, Christians can't go that way. Why? Because we are each made in the image of God. God deals with, doesn't deal with us as groups very often. I mean, Israel had some group punishment, but he deals with us all as individuals, ultimately. And that's the basic argument against identity politics. It's too, it's too blunt an instrument it will destroy rather than make. So, when you come to the Hippocratic Oath, it's usually modified. I don't think there's a single medical school that says it takes the uh, Hippocratic Oath that uses the original one. And I want you to take away from this lecture four ideas, just four. You do well to write them down, but I see there's only about one person taking notes, um, or two. Uh, well, th because this is important. How does the oath open? Do any, does anyone know? The gods of Olympus. I, what? By all the gods of Olympus. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, put the whole thing. You know, I bow by Apollo, Hygieia, Panacea, Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses. Would you take that oath? You probably did, some of you. Christians did for a long while because they were more sophisticated than we are. They would not take an oath and not use the man's words. And they realized what they'd done. So to honor what the Greeks had achieved, of course, the oath had no validity at all for them on that basis. But what's at stake? What's at stake is transcendence. That's the first word you need to think about in medicine. If transcendence isn't part of your life, you're not going to be a good doctor. Not because you're a nasty person, but because you don't have the right intellectual foundations. You're going to undermine the profession, not build it. Because uh, it's a no-brainer, isn't it, when you think about it? I've done this many times in America in Grand Rounds, and people come in, you know, they're still signing in and getting their donut and their coffee and waiting for their pager to go off so that they've got the point they want, they get on with their day and forget Grand Rounds. Uh, and usually it's a Jewish guy. Uh, who's not quite listening when I say this bit. And one of them, who uh, was in Mobile, said, how dare you say that I'm not as good a physician as my evangelical friends? I said, I didn't say that. I said, if you don't believe in transcendence, you are logically less reliable than otherwise. Just think about it. If your doctor does not fear judgment after death, why on earth shouldn't he kill you if he can make a profit and not get caught? And you could certainly do that if you wanted to. If I was ever broke, I have a couple of uh, scenarios for a detective novel that uh, Miss Marple would not solve, nor any of the other great <laughs> fictional detectives, because I could eat a meal with you, exactly the same meal. You would die, I would live, and there would be no abnormal product in your body or mine. That's pretty good, isn't it? 
I won't tell you what it is in case you're having a row with your spouse at the time. <laughs> I'll save it if I'm ever broke. I'll sell it then. In fact, I have two such scenarios. Uh, but no, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? And given the level of trust, I, I can say to students something like this. I say, those students you don't trust, if in a few years' time when everybody's doing euthanasia, you're, those students are in a bar and somebody comes up and has a drink and says, you're looking after my Uncle George, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, if Uncle George dies, you might get a, you might get a, a Mercedes. Would they be tempted? Some of them be tempted for a Ford Taurus, you know. Uh, of course they'd be tempted. That's why we have, and we used to keep, laws about conflict of interest. But we didn't do it in COVID, did we? Anthony Fauci didn't have to declare what his winnings were. Uh, the whole question of whether he should be allowed to patent genes anyway, uh, it's ambivalent. But corruption is inevitable. And when it's legal, ah, oh, there's no way you stop it. You've all seen patients who died earlier than they should have done during your life, haven't you? And you usually didn't follow it up. That's loyalty over truth. I had one boss who was not a believer and he couldn't stand people lingering around and being miserable. So he would say, give them 60 milligrams of steroids that, for a few days. That'll cheer them up no end. And then he'd say, stop it. Of course, they had no natural steroid production. They were dead in a few hours. That was, that was euthanasia. Uh, acute adrenal failure induced by the doctor. And there are various ways that happens. And it's going to increase. In the end, most people who kill patients, uh, they, it becomes addictive. The, the general practitioner who killed 40 people in Britain, in the end, he was crying for help. He, they didn't twig it or they didn't want to do with it until he made a woman change her will in the morning and killed her in the afternoon. And he killed himself in prison a little later. later. But that's transcendence. So number one is transcendence. And then the nature of the gods that you worship will determine the practice of medicine. That's why Muslim doctors who are deeply committed Muslims have a real problem because is Allah bound in any way? No, he's not required to be logical. Uh, he can do whatever he wishes. And your job is only to obey. So they have a great problem, say, in treating a Jew when there are multiple injunctions in the Quran about you shouldn't do that. And even worse, a secularist, an atheist, you kill them immediately, at least for the Jews and the Christians, you just make their life intolerable. You've got to think about these things. We've got to find ways to talk about them because if we don't talk about them, we're lost. Here's something I'd like to see uh, churches put on their bulletin about two or three times a year. It's a quotation from Milton. Where there is a real desire to know, there, of necessity, there must be much argument. For argument amongst good people, Milton, of course, says amongst good men, uh, is but knowledge in the making. When did you hear a serious argument with some passion about the truth of the gospel in your church? 
There should be some, especially from the young who are beginning to... Uh, but it's not acceptable. You want to run a social club, not a church. Social clubs are places where you don't say anything to rock the boat. A church should be somewhere where you go every Sunday expecting to have your boat rocked. That's the pastor's job, because if he is delivering spiritual truth to you, the next step should be repentance. But how many of you even go to a church where an opportunity for re repentance is part of the service? Raise your hand if you do. It's a small percentage. Now, Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. Repentance is not something that God demands of you that he could forego if he wishes. Repentance is simply a description of what coming to God is like. No repentance, no presence of God. And that's an act of mercy. Because if sin comes into God's presence, what would happen to the sin bearer? They'd be dead. He's there, but he keeps you at a safe distance. And you have no joy in your faith. Because you can't have, because you're being disobedient. Uh, I've been touched in the last week or so. I, I, the Sermon on the Mount has been central to my life, and it enters my mind usually several times during any given 24 hours. And that has been the case for at least 20 years now. Um, but only last week, I was struck in a way that I'd never been struck before by the conjunction in the, the Lord's Prayer, which is very basic. And by the way, he doesn't say pray it occasionally. He says, when you pray, say. Yeah. It's a good idea to start all your prayers with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and it's worth doing it slowly. But I had never thought about the conjunction of asking, give us this day our daily bread. And what comes next? Forgive us our trespasses. He puts the need for the sandals, Lord, ignite a fire within us too, for Christ's sake. Amen. Food to survive right next to the need for repentance to survive because you can't be forgiven without repentance. These are core requirements for humans to flourish. And where they did it, they did. I mean, uh, 1 Peter, when Peter is writing to people who are refugees, some of whom have had their nearest and dearest, tarred and feathered and stuck on a pole and lit as lighting for Nero's garden parties. And he says, I know you've had various trials. How dare you call something like that, various trials? We would say, I don't know how you survive an of watching that happen. But Peter didn't say that. He said various trials because I know what? You have a joy beyond words, joy unspeakable. That was so much more important and so much more powerful that he would even handle having your granny tarred and feathered and used as a torch. We're not, we're not worthy to lick their boots, are we? But we might be given an opportunity to do so. I'm amazed that I have never been cancelled. Um, I, I set it up as carefully as I can, and usually I win. Well, I've won every time so far, but... Uh, I don't think you can go on forever. I don't think any of you will want to cancel me. You might want to punch me on the nose. That's okay. But I don't think you do anymore. So number one, transcendence. What do you think the next one is? You don't remember the oath that way. Um, the next thing that he, he talks about, we need to unpack a little bit. When a patient comes to see you, 
What is your job? Do they have to take your advice? No. So it's not to give orders. So what is your job? Your job is to help them to decide what they ought to do. Right? Now, ought is not a scientific word. You cannot get to an ought from an is. There is no route. There is no road. No amount of is will produce an ought. In other words, the moral world is independent of the physical facts. But medicine is primarily not a scientific or technical activity, but a moral one. Because its main function is to help people make moral decisions. Uh, and that's why you can't have a multicultural medicine. Uh, another of the papers that I wrote in Too Much Hurry and got some suitable flack, uh, but you have never seen a multicultural patient. Because you deal with patients individually, every one of your patients has a story of meaning that, from which they derive their morality, although in many cases they've never thought about it. But you do either believe there is a God or there is not a God. Agnosticism is the wimp's option. Because you behave every day and you behave as though one of those two possibilities is true. And then the next step is what kind of God? And each of those what kind of gods comes from a culture that gives them their book. And there are really only about six stories in the world that you have to consider. The, the biggest of all, as Chesterton points out, is paganism, the belief in evil spirits. Any of you been to Africa? Well, you probably didn't think of it primarily as a pagan culture, did you? You knew it was, but Africa is a continent of new Christians in a fading pagan story. But the paganism is still there. When I was bullied into going to Africa in the late 80s to help missionaries with malnutrition. I didn't want to go because once we'd completed the job, I did what any good scientist would do. I looked at the literature to see whether it was having any impact. And the answer is no. And I have yet to go to a mission hospital that's doing it right. There's some move in that direction, but uh, nowhere near enough. And yet if we could fix malnutrition, half of the early childhood mortality would disappear. It's a key factor. It's not the main factor most of the time, but it makes you vulnerable to so many other things. So, the, so paganism is the biggest story. And of course, if you live with the kind of environment that they do live with in Africa, evil spirits make sense. It looks as though somebody's out to get you. And it also looks as though they're not totally in charge because your child dies of measles and the one in the next uh, doesn't. It, it doesn't strike everyone. So an individual evil spirit makes much more sense. But if you believe in evil spirits, then even vehicles don't stop because you didn't put the oil in. An evil spirit did it. And when I went back after the first year in Africa, I'd set up a program, got it going, trained some people. My kids had actually resuscitated malnourished children, which they did every year. All my children as teenagers had children die in their arms, but they saved many more. Uh, the three that aren't in Africa, uh, and this is the one who is. But 
I came back and the program, I could already measure its decline. And uh, one of the nurses I'd trained to recognize malnourished children uh, when the, it was easy to fix it as long as you were making measurements. You can't see it immediately. If you don't make decent measurements, you won't see it. Um, he, he'd had his child die of malnutrition. That was an insult. And I asked him what happened, and he told me he was going to lie by looking at the ground and not at me. And he said we didn't feed him properly because he knew that's what I believed. But I also knew he didn't believe it. And I sent my supervisor to find out what was going on, and he came back in a couple of minutes. He said he believes an evil spirit took his child's appetite away. So he rationally went to the witch doctor to cure, get rid of the evil spirit. And the witch doctor took his money, and the child died. A rational outcome of a pagan world. Uh, and, and you don't, you become converted. When you have the, the experience of conversion, do you become good? No. Conversion makes you redeemed. You are no longer under the power of sin if you are obedient to use the means of grace. But you're not free from sin. None of us are. We don't get to that in this world. But what becomes the habitual world that explains your world has in it the means to grow virtue. There are virtues in the pagan world. Their stoicism is amazing. There are all sorts of things that they do better than us. They will not believe that we have people sleeping on the streets. They say, ah, oh, surely you can build a hut for them, which is what they would do uh, when they weren't having tribal wars. But we, we are, we're well on our way to a nihilistic approach to, uh, the, to life in general. Uh, I remember being stopped in my tracks when I realized that I tended to refer to patients not by their name, but by their disease. The gallbladder in the third bed, you know? That's reductionism. Yeah. Um, so, you've got to have a story. And you can divide the stories up then east and west. The west is the Judeo-Christian ones and Islam. Uh, Islam being a somewhat reduced and legalized uh, growth out of Judeo-Christian thought to a large degree. Uh, they're in deep trouble now we've discovered copies of the Quran which are uh, now carbon dated and dated other ways before the birth of Mohammed. That's going to shake up the Muslim world. One major apologist has already bailed out. Um, and it, it, because of its placing of loyalty over truth, you, you know it's going to happen. It's not, they're not going to run a medical system in the same way. When you train Saudi pilots on uh, a trainer, you know, the virtual thing, not the real thing, they bail out and say, inshallah, when American pilots are struggling to control the aircraft for another few seconds and getting away sometimes, they just go into the wall. Uh, and you see it. If you look, um, the lab that I worked out of in London had the contract to run the dialysis program in Riyadh. And the guys who went out there came back shaking their head. They did not understand because when a machine stopped, inshallah, no, it's a fuse, fix it. Uh, American, young American assistant professors, if they should be allowed to take their grant money to Saudi Arabia because in the corridors, there's 
first class equipment with just one board gone or a fuse gone and they buy a new one. That's not our world. It's increasingly our world uh, because we're, we're far less omnicompetent than we used to be. When I started in research, we made our own micro pipettes. Nobody does that anymore, thank God, but uh, making them and then uh, getting the right quantity marked on it, it took time. Different worlds. Now, on the eastern side, you've got basically Hinduism and Buddhism and their offshoots. Taoism is a very interesting one. Lewis tried to use the Tao as a uh, way of getting at the world in general in uh, the abolition of man. I don't think it really worked very well, but that book's, I think, his best book in many ways. Uh, but that's assuming a culture underneath and the Confucian ideas uh, are practical, but I don't think, well, they clearly don't have sufficient foundation. So if you believe there's a God, which bit of the world do you know best? Well, it's yourself. That's why the Eastern religions go inwards and do meditation, because they don't have the doctrine of the fall. But in the Western religions, you do have the doctrine of the fall, so there's no point in going inwards. So we have a reason to look at God's handiwork and draw conclusions from that. And that's why the scientific revolution could not have happened without real Christianity and a little bit of interference. I think, I usually say, a good, a good date to use for the start of the scientific revolution is 1277. Uh, I use that date because I can defend it, but also because it's long before the so-called Enlightenment, which with McIntyre, I think is better described as an endarkenment. Uh, it's largely about the artistic end of the spectrum, uh, and it hasn't done us a lot of good. But the other end, you see, the early universities in the 12th century were all under the charge of the Catholic Church and the local bishop. And so, and all the people who worked in them were ordained or on the way to it, and they had to obey the bishop. And the Bishop of Paris in 1277 uh, thought that the new Aquinas synthesis of the Bible and Aristotle might lead the humble poor astray. I think evangelicals relate to that, don't they? Uh, you worry about the university, rightly so, but the right way to go about it is not to ban it, but to redeem it. The last thing my mother said to me as I went out to the daughter university aged 17, and she said, beware of philosophers. So the first thing I did was take a philosophy course, of course, and it wasn't much use. But fortunately, Martin Lloyd-Jones and Stott and company were much better. Uh, I was redeemed in that way. So all of a sudden, if you're in Paris, you couldn't use Aristotelian deductive logic. It was banned. And the next bit is pure artistic license on my part, but I think it's true. Uh, I know what professors would do if we were told in August that we couldn't use our notes from last year in September. It would not be a happy day. Uh, most of us would go to the pub and get drunk. Uh, and then when we'd sobered up, I think a conversation like this happened well. What are we going to do? We're told in the Bible that we are to be stewards and in control of nature, but we have precious little control in 1277. We must be doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe we can't do deductive logic, but we could do inductive logic. We could start from 
the beginning, the small things that we can actually see what's going on and try to work towards God. We never made the whole journey and we certainly never made it the other way from God to the small things, which is what they've been trying to do. And you listen to some of those guys doing syllogistic arguments. They're, they're brilliant the way they do it. And they'll go on and say, oh, we've gone wrong. Where should we go back? And they agree where they've been. They say, let's start again there. Uh, they're amazing to listen to. You can still find them in, I think they're on YouTube now. You can find everything on YouTube eventually, can't you? So they started doing inductive reasoning. The reason why students are being taught that, it's, that the scientific method is the hypothetico-deductive system is because they don't want to face induction. You can't get to the first bit, the hypothesis, without the induction. So when it, the first experiment didn't happen immediately, but by the middle of the uh, 14th century in Merton College, Oxford, they actually drew the first graph without knowing what they'd done. I mean, even Aristotle didn't get to velocity. He, said he understood the time to make a journey and the distance of a journey, but he never got to the ratio. And it shows you that very bright people is not always the answer. There's a thing called insight, which I think has got a great deal to do with God. I say to students, don't pray about the results uh, of your experiments. But do pray about which experiments you do because there are millions of experiments out there you do and the real art form is to do the right one at the right time. Uh, and that's worth praying about. So inductive reasoning, rolling a ball down a plane, measuring where it lands. Galileo did that. But the journey started with Occam in Oxford, who was a Franciscan and very smart. You've probably heard of Occam's razor, which he never actually wrote, uh, but the principle is right. Don't make your hypothesis more complex than it needs to be. Uh, he was trying to save God, and you should never bother. God can look after himself much better. Uh, and he saw what was happening in Oxford would be theologically consequential. So what he wanted to do was push away things like justice, honor, truth, all the immaterial things, and say that science should only be about things you can measure. And we've bought into that now. Most young scientists say, if you can't measure it, no use, and they're right. I mean, the problem with the bureaucrats that you have to deal with is that they're, they're doing quantitative assessments that they don't understand. When they started doing it in our setup, I, of course, being who I am, did not cooperate uh, my first response when they asked for data was to send the email straight back, what are you going to use this data for? And that, they didn't reply in half the time. The next one did. Uh, and I would say, which statistics pack are you going to lift off the shelf to analyze this? And of course, they choose a normally distributed one. And disease is not normally distributed you've got to do non-parametric statistics if you're going to be honest, and they didn't even know what it was. Uh, but they left me alone after that. Uh, I didn't earn much money from the health system anyway, so uh, they, they want those numbers because they give them control. You should always respond with qualitative data if it is more appropriate. I mean, it really doesn't matter how many minutes you spend with patients and their assessments of patient satisfaction are not what matters. I mean, it's important, but it's not primary. You've got to start thinking about how you deal with this. My son 
is now a professor of mathematics uh, in the business school in Ottawa, working on healthcare with stochastic analysis. And his PhD uh, thesis was on the use of expensive equipment in an undercapitalized system like the Canadian one. You're overcapitalized. And the result is that patients have to pay for it by multiple tests that are not required. I mean, who would dare in the American system to diagnose secondary cancer of the liver and therefore death within a very short time in an older patient without doing any tests at all? But it's perfectly valid. Uh, but you'd be sued. What proportion of what you do do you think is defense from lawyers? Yeah. <laughs> Particularly in the intensive care units. So little digression to the end point, healthcare, how do we change it? Think about doing this, going home and setting up a power of attorney program for your church. Because when you get into ICU at the end of your life, you don't want to put the burdens of decisions onto your nearest and dearest because your nearest and dearest have not always treated you as well as we should, right? So we come to the death of our nearest and dearest with guilt as well as everything else. And you must have noticed this, when a, a son who's been estranged forever turns up at the end of life, he's going to be the one who wants everything done. And the reason is not anything to do with mum, it's to do with his guilt for leaving mum out of his life. Now, you give that power of, eternity to, uh, of uh, power of attorney to someone who shares your beliefs. It's also power of eternity, isn't it, in a way? Um, they can go into ICU. Uh, you need a, a lawyer, a doctor, and someone like my wife who won't take no for an answer would be perfect, you know. And actually, the ICU guys are very shortly going to love you because they don't enjoy doing uh, tests and all the rest to keep the lawyers at bay. And if you take that responsibility away and say, look, you know you're not going to win this one. Let's take all the tubes out and get this patient into a, at least a room and if possible home, even if it's only for a few hours, so that they can die in familiar circumstances with their family and everything around. Dying is important. God shows up frequently, especially in pediatrics. Any of you not read Diane Comte's little book, A Window on Heaven? All of you? Okay, write it down. Uh, Diane Comte, I know, we're the same age. We both grew up in Christian homes. We both sidelined in our faith. I just let it go. I, I wasn't against it. I always believed, but I didn't practice. She actually became an existentialist, which is a much more serious problem. Uh, but uh, she was very smart. And she wouldn't mind me saying uh, she would never be a sex object. Uh, and she knew she intimidated the men by being so smart. Uh, and she wasn't going to get married. But she loved children. So she went into pediatrics. And rather foolishly, uh, she ended up doing oncology, inevitably becoming head of oncology at Yale in due course. Now, she's my age. She's retired now. Um, but in those days, we didn't have the success we have now. Uh, but she, when she reached the point where she could do no more, she let the social workers and the nurses get neurotic and she didn't engage. But her mother, like my mother, could turn up at the back of her head 
uh, in the form of conscience, saying, I didn't bring you up to desert children you love and who love you. You should be there. And she gave in. And the first child she sat with was a little girl of about eight, dying of leukemia. And fading away in a terminal coma, mom and dad and the hospital chaplain who ran away with what came next because he couldn't handle it. And children have lucid intervals before death more often than adults. But you've all, I presume, seen it or you probably weren't there. You know it happened in cases of yours. But this little girl suddenly sat up in bed and said, Mummy, can you see the angels? Can you hear their singing? It's beautiful. And she was gone. And their par her parents could see she had seen something they couldn't see and she couldn't get there quick enough. Wonderful, wonderful thing to happen to you in bereavement. And then Diane didn't give in at that. It took two more children. And as she said, I was an arrogant Yale professor. So God used a little guy with Down syndrome and one sentence to drive the final nail into the coffin of my existentialism. And I won't spoil the book for you. But if you ever see it on a shelf in a second-hand bookshop, buy it to give it away. Uh, and teach your students to, and yourself, spend more time. If someone is dying and they're Christian, be there. You will see things that will help you. Uh, and we need to make our churches like that. So power of attorney can make sure that dying is done properly. It should be done at home. It's one of the three great occasions for evangelism, isn't it? For most people, there's only three opportunities. They, they get christened or baptized in the church in many cases. They get married in the church and they get buried from the church. And many people, that's it. We must use those opportunities. I have, uh, Canada has a higher immigration rate than you do per capita. There are students in classes in medicine uh, who cannot pass my biblical literacy test at all. It's on my website. You won't pass it all, but you'll do reasonably well. But there are students from other cultures for whom the sentence, if you take that job, it will be a crown of thorns, is meaningless. They don't even know what the crown of thorns means because it's not their culture, but it is ours. And if it wasn't, our culture would be very, very different. And it's our culture, and they need, we need to be more honest about this. Only one place in the world invented experiments. Nobody else did. The Chinese didn't do it. The Indians didn't do it. One Muslim tried it, and the Sheikh nearly had him killed for doing it. Uh, but we did it because of what happened in Paris. And it wasn't long. I mean, the trouble is it worked. And then they started to forget its history. So it went from Oxford to France, to Buridan and the great Nicola Resme, then Descartes, and it came back to Francis Bacon, not Roger Bacon. And Bacon changed the meaning of the word fact. When you as a medical student heard someone say, just give me the facts, doctor, that didn't include what the patient believed, did it? The facts were things that could be measured. But all the things that matter to you most in your life cannot be measured. Can't measure love. You can make a long list of the immaterial goods which make your life worthwhile. So a purely quantitative approach won't work. Science doesn't do that. The science simplifies, hence reduction, 
but without too much damage, and you learn in the process, and then you test the results. It's a very solid, effective system. When Galileo rolled that ball down an inclined plane and let it arc, he was trying to help the people firing cannons to be more accurate. Because Aristotle, who was so sure he was right, didn't bother to do experiments. So his mind told him, you imparted something to the stone and it would go. When it was finished, it would drop vertically. He didn't bother to go and see. And of course, things fell in proportion to their weight. He didn't go to the nearest cliff to find out that they didn't because they, they admired their own minds, and they were very good minds. Much that they did was right, but the imposition of the circle uh, basically stopped astronomical physics for 1,500 years. And when um, Kepler got it, it's another of those occasions, a real Christian. Kepler wrote prayers in his lab book, uh, a deeply committed Christian with an incredibly difficult life, but he insisted, he said, God showed him that it was an ellipse. He spent six years recalculating data, trying to fit it into a circle and it wouldn't fit. Uh, and then he says, God showed me. And he, he writes a prayer giving thanks for the error, in inverted commas, of the orbit of Mars, which was due to the fact it was an artifact because both Mars and the Earth were going around the Sun, so it looks from here, Mars does this at one point. But it's not doing that. It just looks as though it's doing that. And he sorted that out, and Kepler's laws, and then Newton came along and made it physics. And within a 100 years of Newton, Laplace, a practicing Catholic, says to the Napoleon, when asked where God fits in his physics, he said, I have no need of the hypothesis of God to do physics. And, that was, that's, and the next hundred years is the worst in many ways. Uh, now I think we're on the verge of having a little light come in. Uh, certainly uh, the, the physics department is the safest place to send a Christian child at the moment. If you do either quantum physics or cosmology, you will think about God, and they're quite open about it. And they don't fuss. They just talk about it. Only in biology do they fuss if you use uh, the word God. So you have to play it harder. But molecular biology is destroying them. It has, in fact, already destroyed them. If, you ha if you're interested in the subject, read Stephen Meyer. Uh, his book, uh, the last three books that he's written, are stunningly good. Uh, and the, the neo-Darwinians, even admit it. Uh, so that, the biological one is going to join the cosmological one. They're going to, it, we're already halfway there. In my last 25 years in the Department of Biochemistry, I never heard anyone discuss evolution. Everybody wrote a sentence somewhere in the first paragraph of their grant, just in case there was a, a real Darwinian there who would want to sabotage them. So it's rather like, you know, the snuff for the emperor in the first century, which Christians wouldn't do but we do it in biochemistry. Uh, uh, the irony, hopefully, is picked up by those that are uh, able to handle irony. Not many these days. So that's first, transcendence. Second, the moral nature. Third, the test of that nature is an absolute commitment to the sanctity of human life. Because if it's not absolute, you see, we are not identity politics. We should have been 
in arms, but we aren't. God deals with everyone individually, not in groups. Identity politics wants to put you all in different groups and then they'll make you do what that group does. You suffer from it so badly already. I mean, Johnson's absolutely iniquitous legislation that made it profitable for a black girl who was pregnant not to have the man who was the father in the house. Then she got a pension. Bring the father in. She didn't. So that has led to the, the plague of absentee fathers in the black community, which is the biggest problem by far. Of the black boys who are in prison, 90% more don't know who their father is. Fathers have a role. And when mothers do father's job instead of making father do it, which is harder to do but more important, we're in trouble too. My wife did a lot of good work to get me back with the children. And my job, she cooked the food, she made sure that the children ate decently with some manners. Eating with an open mouth is an insult to the person sitting next to you, or opposite you rather. And put down your knife and fork between mouthfuls and make a civilized comment. Uh, and my job was to stimulate the conversation, which I didn't mind too much. Uh, <laughs> medical students used to come to us once I'd been melted a little bit. They came for the food, but they came for the arguments. They could not believe our family. We were very competitive, all of us, about who said what, when. So there would sometimes be more books than plates on the table at the end of a meal, and they could, a meal could easily last an hour. And the students came because although they came from good homes, nobody ever argued. And your churches don't argue. They've got to get back to argument without malice. And I didn't realize until relatively recently this is harder for women than men. Uh, I couldn't believe it, but it's a woman feminist who taught me. She said there was a, a feminist from Northwestern wrote a very angry paper saying women have a duty to hate men, basically. Uh, and this woman had been right. She's written lots of blogs, but eventually she got cancelled and she retired. But she did about 160 videos that are on YouTube. Uh, but one of them, she took this lady's thing and said, well, there are some things we should hate men for. Take, for instance, the fact that when men get together after being apart for a while, uh, they, they can be quite rowdy. Sometimes they throw punches, but then they go to the pub and have a, a good laugh about it and do some vigorous work or some sort. But we women find it much harder to give up on our grievances. And I've been surprised that women have said, you're right. Even in church, there are people, well, you go back to Philippians and Paul is talking about it, and I never thought about it. What does it tell two people? Couldn't remember their names on the way here. Get your act together. But you can only do it as a Christian. Uh, we have different problems, but it's the woman's task for certain to civilize the man because you're not going to get civilized any other way. But you can do that. And if you don't, on your head be it. Uh, that will make a big difference. And of course, the final one, you can work that one out. I'm not even doing the Sanctity of Life one for you because most of you care about that. Uh, what you've, what's been done in your Supreme Court, of course, is not going to solve the problem it, because it's not a legal problem. In the end, it's a matter of uh, faith. I do have a CD if you're interested, but it's another hour. 
I didn't talk about abortion for a long while. I was pro-choice as a young ID physician over rubella babies before we had a rubella vaccine. It's very hard to tell a woman you have a 90% probability of a child with either one or both cardiac and neurological problems. And so what we were taught to say as juniors is say, this pregnancy's gone wrong, hasn't it? To which the answer is yes. Would you like to start again? Yes, we can make that happen. Abortion was strictly illegal at the time. It went on the OR list as just a DNC. And the police were never going to do anything, but it was illegal. But I, I felt no guilt. Because you see, that felt when I should have thought. If I'd used my mind instead of my feelings, I might have avoided it. I didn't think about it for 20 years. And then in that process where God was getting to work on me uh, and, and he was stripping away the biochemical bit, one afternoon uh, I left the guys in the lab said, don't disturb me. Uh, I'm taking the phone off the hook and I don't want any knocks on the door. I've got some things to think about. And I sat down and said, okay, I must write down the argument pro and con as a purely rational exercise. And at the end of the afternoon, I knew why I couldn't and I knew how to frame it. And I wasn't happy because I didn't want anything to do with this phenomenon. Uh, so I called one of my favorite uh, Catholics, uh, a Jesuit called Robert Spitzer. If you want to hear somebody who really knows how to apologize, he can pray like a Pentecostal, but he, has, he also teaches quantum physics. Uh, He's retired now because he's going blind, but you can still find him online. So I called him and said, Robert, I think I've got another way of approaching the abortion issue. I want you to criticize it. So I explained and he said, I think that's good. I think it will work. You've got to do it. I said, that's not what I wanted to hear. Uh, I didn't immediately, but then I started speaking and then people complained to, to us to Sally, because I don't read the emails unless she tells me to, uh, saying, if we'd known, we could have got to a lecture. And she said, I can't tell everybody. I don't know where everybody lives, so I'm starting a website for you and putting your travels on there. And I said, oh, nobody will go. I was absolutely wrong. The first group to go, of course, was students. And almost immediately, I got a call. I was going to Ann Arbor, and the students from Detroit called and said, we see you're going to Ann Arbor for Ottawa, you have to go through Detroit. Will you speak to us first? And this was um, Wayne State, which is dominantly black. And I said, sure, uh, especially if you'll drive me on to Ann Arbor and they, the people don't have to come and fetch me. They said, we'll do that, good. What do you want me to talk about? Abortion in the middle of the day in the medical school. And I said, I don't do that. And they said, why? And I said, I have no desire to be lynched in public. And they said, but we've heard you speak. We think you can do it. And I said, um, flattery will get you nowhere. And then they did the Christian thing and said, we've been praying about it. <laughs> uh, and I knew it was going to happen. So I said, as long as it's a lecture theatre with an escape hatch by the lectern and the car's running, uh, I'll do it. And I did it. And it ended in total silence. Uh, no one said a word for a couple of minutes, and then there were a couple of respectful questions. Yeah. And that was it. The last line in the lecture every time, because it works, is, I have laid out two worlds for you. Which one do you want to give to your children? Mm -hmm. And it's ours. 
but we don't do it right. First of all, take Aquinas. If you're ever doing an abortion debate, the first thing you must do, Aquinas was a very smart man. You make the opposition's case for them and you do it better than they can do it. And they relax. And then you say, but. And you take that wall down and replace it with yours. So the talk is called the domino effect of Roe v. Wade because the cultural consequences of abortion, they haven't thought about it. They just want their life with total control over the life of the unborn. But they don't realize that when they do that, there's a whole set of entailments, uh, at least six of them, including the animal rights movement, actually. Uh, and so I do the domino effect. And I've done it, started in Wayne State, I've done it in Harvard, I've done it in the West Coast uh, universities, Madison, perhaps the most liberal uh, campus in, in America, uh, Minnesota, Oxford, St. Petersburg, Sydney, uh, India. Uh, I've never had a single aggressive question at the end of it. I must have done it 80 times now. Not one. It's, it, it's stunning because they, they're not arguing with me. That's the reason, of course. I know, I, I, that line, have no fear what you will say, uh, I have seen that so many times. Just last week, I, uh, we're having to get rid of our townhouse because we now live in the country permanently. So a lot of stuff being moved around. And I remembered uh, that I had had a talk about euthanasia before Parliament, the Parliamentary Committee. Uh, and it was somewhere in those papers, and I found it. It was 1991. And uh, it's a stunning example of that verse because there were multiple presentations, and the guy before me was boring, and people, some of the committee fell asleep. And the chairman said, when I got to the microphone, he said, you have to submit a paper. They don't allow us to go off like you do in your Congress very disorganized. Uh, and he, the chairman said, Dr. Patrick, we will read your paper into the, into the record, but we need someone to talk to us. Put your talk down and talk. So I was commanded not to use my notes. And uh, I found it last week in, in, Hans in Hansard. And I wish I'd, I, I remember thinking at the time, I wish I'd written this stuff that I'm saying, because poetry, all sorts of things that I hadn't used for years came up in exactly the right moment. Even a quote from Camus to end it. End it. Uh, and then I, I was sure that, that the chairman had said something, because, but I was on a high. And what he actually said was, Dr. Patrick, if you use a scalpel like you use words, I would like to come and watch. And that and two other Christian presentations stopped the bill at that stage. So in 1991, we got another 10 years. But until the culture changes as a whole, it's perfectly rational and indeed inevitable for somebody who can't see the difference between themselves and a chimpanzee to want euthanasia. And to look upon it as a good thing to do. So medicine is in trouble because the world is in trouble. Yeah. And conscience rights are the last of the four. I will guard my life in art and purity. And so you've got to learn to push this. Ah, 
His Lordship is saying I should have finished an hour ago. Uh, conscience doth make cards of us all. But we have the right to moral integrity, but you must do it by questions. The, the key to teach your children, when you think you're going to make a statement about Christianity, bite your tongue and rephrase it as a question. They're working hard on making questions unacceptable too, but it's hard to do. So in the case of conscience, it would do something like this. Do you wish me to affirm your current beliefs or do you wish me to tell you what I think I know about your disease? Yeah. Not even the worst feminist is going to want mm -hmm. anything other. They want your expertise and they want you to be competent at that stage. Yeah. And you, you should rub it in a little bit. That means you must give me my rights of conscience. Yeah. And that's, that's important. Now, there are two words for conscience, and they're not the same. One's Greek and one's Latin. But you'll have to go and look that up for yourself. You'll find it in some of my writings somewhere if you want to. Uh, and the best person, actually, was Benedict. So if you want to look up euthanasia, he gave a talk to Catholic bishops in Dallas uh, some years ago. You'll find it on YouTube. Brilliant. They know how to argue and they've thought about it. Sadly, they have huge problems as well. Uh, the current Pope is a disaster, yeah. but uh, the, the last two were pretty astonishing. If you have a Catholic friend who is into the ethos of Catholicism without the life of Catholicism, which John Paul knew about, John Paul is a very good person to read with them. The, the encyclical, uh, The Splendor of Truth, is superb. And it's a biblical exposition from John Paul. So I always use that if, we, if I'm going to read with a, a Catholic who wants to read. And I learn from them because they've got a long history. But they have forgotten how to do evangelism in many places, and they're honest about it, the best of them. Uh, but their, their, their services at best are beautiful, and orthodox and rich. You can't say that about us, can you? I mean, we have rather silly praise songs rather too often. I'll finish with a quotation to take, which will allow me to go back to one of those praise songs. Any of you know what the last telegram was sent from Dunkirk to London in the Second World War? Sent from the beaches as the last ship left, taking the troops back to England who were going to fight. They got away. It was three words. But if not, it arrived in London, immediately understood. It wasn't coded. The Germans certainly must have been to, uh, picked it up, but they wouldn't know what it meant. Now, any of you know what it means immediately? It requires that it brings to mind one story from the Bible. And, of course, I grew up going to school, having the Bible read by my mother. We had a chapter of the Bible in school every day. That was the most stupid thing done in American education, was to take the, the book that is the key to the culture. And the good atheist will, scholar will say that immediately. The closing the American mind is the place to go. Uh, so we had 12 years, even if we never went to church, we had 12, to 12 years of having a, a chapter of the Bible every day in school. And that's good.
So we, and that's a peak retention, you know. That's why you, you read lots of the Bible to your children and don't tell them what it means. Just get the stories into their head. And when they get to seven or so and they start asking how and why, then you can add our attempts at theology. But first, get every story into their mind, which can be done by the age of 12. And they'll remember them and correct you when you get them wrong. And it's dad's job to do it, by the way. Mom will do it as well. But dad does carry authority. And if dad says, oh, that's wonderful, go to Sunday school with mom, I'm going to play golf. That totally undermines the whole thing. Dad has got to take his responsibility seriously. So it goes like this, be it known unto you, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace, but if not, we will not bend the knee. What a magnificent telegram, but even more magnificent that it was understood by the culture immediately. Now, our God is able to remember that a few years ago, 95 times. Wouldn't that course have changed? But if not, we will still continue. Yes, he's able, but he's not saying that everything you want is going to come your way. Far from it. In this world, they will put you in prison. They will murder you, but fear not, I will be with you. And of course, the early church, it was the stories of how the martyrs died that made the greatest impact. I mean, Islam conquered the Mediterranean basin with the sword. Christianity, uh, in my view, uh, conquered it by loving children. They were the first groups to stop exposing their children and rescuing the exposed children of others. There's no word about that in the New Testament, but you knew what Jesus would do. That's a what would Jesus do answer that hurts, but it's a proper one, not the sentimental stuff when you're wearing it as a wristband and you take it off when you have sex. Eh? I hope you guys enjoyed that talk. If you want John to speak at your church or at your event, be sure to reach out. You can use the links in the description below, and we will see you guys next week. Mm -hmm.